people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. Hello, welcome to Twelve Rules for What Quarantined Edition. Um, we've been struggling so hard for the last month to bring you an episode. We're sorry for the wait. Uh, my name is Sam. I'm Alex. And we're going to be talking today about what else? The coronavirus. And its implications for the far right, how the far right's been responding, how uh, fascists have been responding, and how beyond them, what we're calling the black-pilled, um, the kind of community of nihilists and uh, people who want nothing but societal collapse, how they are responding as well. So, um, how have you been, Alex? Yeah, it's been fine. Isolation's been um, a fairly uh, boring affair. I've been going a bit, um, driving myself up the wall. Um and yeah, like you said, this episode's a bit, if it sounds like we're recording in a tin can, it's because we're, obviously we can't be in the same room together and we're recording off our laptops. So we're real DIY this week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, I think this is the, the way forward. Uh, I think that there's going to be a real, hopefully a real collapse in obsession with audio quality, obsession with video quality, and everyone will be able to um, yeah, make things and feel free to make things regardless of the technological setup. So um the other reason why we've not been getting out episodes to you is slightly more positive than just technical uh, hitches. We've also been writing furiously. First book is for Dog Section Press. It's a book called Post-Internet Fascism or Post-Internet Far Right, depending on what we settle on. And um, the second book, which has never felt more relevant, I don't think, and feels like it's going to be the basis for uh, you know a lot of the discussion today, is on eco-fascism or eco-reactionary politics. So um, politics that responds to the crisis of climate change or that responds to climate change-like crises, which I'm going to argue that coronavirus very much is, um, even if it hasn't been presented like that in the, in, the, in the news by and large. How the far right is responding to that and what we could do about that, that's the kind of topic of the book. Um, it's also the topic, obviously, of this podcast, but particularly about coronavirus. So if you're coming back from the future, and you've already read the book, uh, this is the introduction to that book. So, <laughs> you know, uh, feel free to skip it. Um, so what are we, uh, what are the kind of the general coordinates of the far right's response? I like how you're assuming we've even got a future. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, very naive of me. <laughs> um, I think academic publishing will continue at least another year. That's my... Uh, <laughs> That's the best case scenario at this point. Yeah, fingers crossed anyway. We need to get those post-apocalypse um, royalties. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting like six pence per book and then like hyperinflation taking that down to like effectively a millionth of a pence. Um, yeah, anyway, go on. Well, we spoke, we spoke before in like earlier episodes about um, like kind of politics being defined and especially politics and like kind of far right being... I mean, politics in general being defined by like big key, like keystone events, which people like kind of refer back to and uh, like uh, hitch their identity, political identity to in many ways. And uh, for a long time, we've said that, and even people like Dave, Ren- Dave Renton have made this point that World War Two was kind of like the overarching um, event of the political uh, p- political world, the, uh, the British political world. Um, and, you know, anti-fascists could use that very successfully to uh, cast all their kind of op- opponents as Nazis and refer back to um, kind of World War II and um, anti-fascism 
in that in that sense in order to um, kind of fight back against the opposition. And this was effective in a number of ways. One, because a lot of the far right they were dealing with were like Nazis who who um, who did believe in national socialism as expressed by Hitler, and there was photos of them dressed in kind of very uh, fascist uniforms, and you could use that kind of natural repulsion of the British public in order to make your point very effectively. Um, and as time has gone on, um, the kind of World War II has faded and has lost a lot of its potency. Um, we've had new events come in that has kind of given people political identities, namely, you know, things like Thatcherism, um, 9-11, and uh, most recently, of course, Brexit, which was, we said in maybe our latest or one of our last few episodes, that Brexit was like kind of the defining political kind of event that would shape politics and uh, it would have been if uh, the pandemic hadn't come along and now we are living in a post-coronavirus world and a lot of our politics in the next 10 years, 15 years will refer back to what we're living in now and use as its basic, those basis, those, pol- those politics that are coming up, that are being forged now in order to, um, you know, create new political identities and new kind of uh, political arguments and movements. Um, so we are in very much in a state in fl- a state of flux at the moment, and the the kind of cannier operators on the far right recognise that as much as we should recognise that as like kind of leftists. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I think that the what well, the only thing that might undermine that is not that the coronavirus is not a major event, but that there might be you know, a few years down the road, just like there was for Brexit, something even bigger. Right, there might be something even more spectacular. And that's what I think we're kind of moving into as we move into a period of sustained um, climate change disaster, climate systems breakdown, which is going to basically define the next 100 years uh, in, incre- in increasingly um, complex and chaotic ways. I think that's that kind of wave motion where things are kind of accelerating, accelerating, accelerating. And as they accelerate, they not only become um, faster waves, but also more turbulent waves. And politics actually becomes more and more kind of chaotic and sporadic. So I think in those conditions of increasing turbulence politically and increasing complexity and overlappingness of these events that are kind of era-defining, I think what's going to happen is probably something like um, uh, increasingly complex far-right response, which tries to harness that kind of chaos rather than necessarily having a distinct program that pushes itself forwards. So I think that's that's a real kind of worry, and that's definitely something that we're going to be seeing on the the black-pilled side, what we call the black-pilled side. I should just maybe explain that term. So obviously, I'm pretty sure most listeners know about the red pill and the blue pill. Uh, the red pill is how you kind of see underneath the surface of reality. For the far right, what this means is that it means that they see um, the kind of the truth of racial identity or some other kind of red pill, often about anti-Semitism, often about something like, something like that. So well, that's a red it's pill. It's mainly, I mean, mainly feminism, but I mean, that's where it originated. It's taken yeah, the red so, pill was... Uh, seeing that men were actually oppressed. Yeah, so that, 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 that's where it begins, but I think now the term is mostly used about, um, as far as I've been seeing, mostly used about racial identity and, and, uh, and uh, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. So there's, that's the red pill. The blue pill is you go back to normality, you become normie, whatever. The black pill is this like next stage where you have lost all hope. So there's a phrase, there is no political solution, which is used by... Uh, terrorists on the far right, such as the Christchurch shooter and other people like them, 
to promote a kind of a uh, to promote a worldview in which nothing can really be changed by substantial political action. The only thing that's left is acts of sporadic mass violence. So I think as we move into this kind of turbulent period of climate change, we're very very likely to see increasingly much climate what I'm going to call climate nihilist terrorism. People who believe there's nothing to do but to, to kill people. And that's what we're seeing at the very end of the far-right coronavirus response. There's a glee about the onslaught of coronavirus. There's, there's, a, there's a real thrill in, the, in watching people die, in watching systems collapse, in watching the health service collapse in Italy, also in Wuhan um, and elsewhere. There's a, there's a real sense that something finally monstrous is happening. And I think it's really interesting to see where those two things are positioned in relation to their, their general worldview. So we've talked in our book about this move on the far right from, as you say, explicit Nazis in the Second World War into through, say, for example, the Turner Diaries, where you have the system and the anti-system. And then you get, as it goes on, as it goes on, um, that's in the 70s, late 70s. And then as we go through into the 80s, 90s, in, you know, ultimately the 2000s, the analysis in some way weakens and weakens and weakens. So that what the far right sees itself as opposing is not necessarily you know, capitalism and particular corporations and so on and so on and so on, and, or you know, what they would call in the National Socialist period, um, world jewelry, like not necessarily even something as coherent as that, but just like the system in general. And therefore the virus, the coronavirus itself, can come to seem like an ally in opposing the global system. And I've seen you know, a lot of uh, thoughts like this. And interestingly, so also their opposite, uh, interestingly, which is not that the virus is, a, is an attack on capitalist um, modernity, that is an allied to Nazis, but is actually um, also simultaneously, perhaps, a, a bioweapon developed by um, you know, China, Israel, what have you. And where are you seeing this kind of black pill politics taking place? You've seen you've seen a lot of these arguments being made. I mean, obviously they're not being being expressed on like your average Facebook profile or um, your YouTube channel. Yeah, so these are these are mostly happening on eight um, chan, sometimes nine chan, uh, Discord servers, Telegram groups. You know, uh, the kind of the various uh, scattered dark internet. I mean, not dark internet in the sense of deep web but dark internet in the sense of difficult to find elusive little islands that you have to kind of know about before you can find them these kind of places on the internet for sure this is not a mainstream opinion i think we should go you know now i've given you the most extreme version we should go back towards the kind of fairly the more comparatively organized groups on the far right um such as patriotic alternative in the uk do you want to maybe say how they've been responding I mean, I guess just quickly, I mean, on the, on that point about it is important to study the extremes of like, I guess, any political kind of tendency, because um, it's not as if the the extreme is separate from or like kind of insulated from the mainstream of the fascism of, of the far right. Um, and in fact, it is very much incorporated within it and it's dependent on each is dependent on the other. So you see a lot of times these kind of figures on the kind of terrorist side of the far right of fascism, like the Christchurch shooter or like Anders Breivik. You know, Anders Breivik liked a lot of EDL pages, was corresponding with EDL um, 
kind of members on Facebook. Not that that places him in the EDL politics or group or organisation. It's just that he was interacting with a lot of those people and was involved in that politics. Same with the Christchurch shooter who was, you know, corresponded directly with uh, Martin Selner of Generation Identity, um, toured around Austria, gave them money um, and before he, you know, committed his act of mass violence. And so these things are a part of each other rather than kind of separate, I would say. Absolutely. I think that, that, that that's totally true. There's, I think that what crisis does to the far right, though, is often pull it apart in interesting ways. So I think in the fascist response or the far right response, um, so that's two different groups of organised uh, people on the far right. The, on the fascist response and the far right response, we're seeing a, a bifurcation. Where on the one hand, there's kind of authoritarian response, which is classically far right, where you get people demanding we should shut the borders. And then at the more extreme end of that, you get people who say we should shut the borders and everyone who isn't white should be deported. So those are kind of two variants of the same thing. But they're things that are calling for state action and they're calling for state action um, in a fairly straightforward and kind of normal way. I mean, it's extreme. the consequence of that would be extreme violence, but it's not... Um, it's not the other side, which is the conspiratorial side, that believes that um, the virus was either put about by the Chinese or put about by um, 5G or put about by um, a conspiracy of Jews or put about by or um, the, the, the US government itself or made by the CIA or so on and so on. Or alternatively, who believes that there is no virus and that the entire thing is a kind of a hoax in order to get people to stay at home, um, you know, impose authoritarianism and so i think although there is a kind of a what you could call like a continuity or a contiguity where things can be you can very easily move from one section of the far right to the other section of the far right as exactly you saw in that christchurch shooter and generation identity their kind of correspondence although there is that kind of contiguity there is are also these moments of friction and tension and i think the coronavirus is a really interesting one of those given that the conspiratorial dimension and the authoritarian dimension of the far right seem actually quite like directly opposed in how to respond to this matter, or even whether or not there is something to respond to at all. We, we need to look at, we also need to look at coronavirus, um, the coronavirus crisis as a crisis in itself, and um, think about how crises are used um, in politics, not to further a political agenda, push a certain tendency, make, uh, create broad shifts in kind of public perceptions and public beliefs in a very short space of time. And obviously, you know, the, using crisis in politics is nothing new. Um, the kind of the, uh, I guess, the big defining crisis of our lives, if you're of a certain age, is um, 9-11. And the kind of uses that 9-11 were put to by the political right in America and new, um, uh, I mean, by the political right in America and new labour in, in the UK to further kind of like a surveillance agenda and to push these like, huge wars in the Middle East and big that killed a lot of people. Um, and it could be argued that these things were going to happen eventually anyway, but the kind of the, the kind of shattering of kind of people's kind of self um, uh, self-belief and thought patterns about how the world works, it creates openings in which um, and confusion in which big kind of overarching changes can be pushed and 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 pushed for a very long time and kind of entrenched into our kind of politics. So we are still, you know, almost 20 years on from 9-11. We are, we are left with um, kind of the surveillance state that 
it, it kind of generated ongoing um, death and instability in the Middle East and ongoing intervention in the Middle East 20 years later. Um, and and so these things stay with us for a long time um, as, as kind of the big shifts happen. A coronavirus, is, is, it will be another version of this and another kind of entrenching of certain authoritarian impulses um, and certain kind of um, politics. And it's up to us to try and change and kind of shape and have an influence on what those kind of ongoing kind of outcomes from the crisis will be. For example, like crises are not just used by the far right, although they often play on them, play on people's fears, um, push their kind of push kind of reactionary politics in response to um, big big anxiety-inducing events. The left is also um, can also use crises to their advantage and push their kind of politics because everything has becomes unstable and unsteady at times. And so we are in a moment of real flux right now. And uh, although it is not at the moment safe enough to, you know, be doing any kind of mass politics in any way, we need to be staying away from each other. Uh, when it becomes kind of feasible to do so, we need to be start. Actually, I mean, we can do it online anyway, but like we need to start kind of organising I, re- I really agree with I really agree with all of this and I think I, this is the really really crucial to think about this because the next 50 years 100 years whatever have a long climate systems breakdown it's going to go on for you know 400 years a thousand years whatever yeah um that's going to be defined almost exclusively by a series of unpredictable crises and they're not going to be the crisis that you think they're going to be and I think that's what's really cr- important about the coronavirus experience not necessarily the crisis itself not necessarily the virus itself but the experience of it is that if you told, if you asked anyone, what will climate change feel like? Or what will a climate-related disaster feel like? Then they almost certainly wouldn't say that, oh, I had to stay in my house for three months. Right? That would not be on anyone's radar, I don't think, about you know, you know, two months ago. No one would have thought that. And yet, here we are, experiencing a climate-related crisis in a really unpredictable way. Oh, oh and why, why are we saying that coronavirus is climate-related or environment-related? Well, because... Um it started in the environment. Um, it is triggered by human activity or human intervention into the natural world. Um, and it is exacerbated and spread by human activity and um, a certain class of society um, travelling by planes, um, international commerce, things like this, um, which has kind of intensified the crisis in the very centres of, of kind of capital. Um, New York, London, America, the UK, Europe. Um, these, um, these, these, these kind of the virus was not spread by um, the poor necessarily. At least initially, it was spread by kind of people travelling business class or you know travelling on international flights. Um, and so we need to we need to look at coronavirus, the coronavirus, as an environmental uh, catastrophe, which it is. Um, first um before we see it as a health crisis which it also is and the kind of societal kind of crisis which it also is um it is an it is the kind of um environmental catastrophe come 15 20 years early and in a much kind of shorter faster uh pace of time and i mean the other the other idea we have about crisis is that they're these big kind of disastrous events so like 9-11 but another kind of crisis is the um for example the 2008 um, um, economic, the Great Recession, um, in which you know, like it was a very, it was a different kind of crisis. It was over a longer period of time. It was quiet. Um, people lost their jobs quietly. People had lost their houses quietly. 
uh, out of the kind of eye of like a big spectacular, out of the kind of the maelstrom of a big spectacular event. And this is what we're seeing now. Like the climate crisis is not going to be like um, whatever those big disaster movies are, where the, a great wave sweeps into a city and knocks over buildings. It's going to be uh, things are going to get a little bit worse over a long period of time. People are going to have to stay indoors a lot more. Um, the air quality is going to slowly degrade more than it is. The kind of the 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 weather is going to get more extreme, but more regularly extreme. Um, we're going to have to live with this constant kind of uh, uh, degradation in our in our in our lives, um, and this is the kind of crisis in which we're faced. Not some big spectacular event. For sure, yeah, and I think also the um, things like even I would say even more disastrous things for like industrial um, modernity, which are things like you know su- massive stress on supply chains worldwide, or just the impossible like you know crops failing in quite like a substantial way. That's not impossible. I mean, we, I mean, we're already seeing the crops not not crops failing, but like farmers like um, I just literally saw this morning farmers euthanizing thirty one thousand chickens in some state in America because the egg demand's gone all haywire or milk being dumped by the by the you know metric tons do you know what i mean it's um these kind of supply chains are already exposing their kind of great fragility yeah this is what uh, is called a crisis of overproduction you can uh, look it up kids um yes i think i should we should also talk about a little bit about the state response to this so you said that there's the 911 rightly and also the 2008 crisis in some ways were both used to push a surveillance agenda i think that's absolutely true but i think also in pandemics we need to have the other side of state violence visible which is not the state violence where you have jackboots and people come to your door and you know knock it in and so on the state violence that we need to think think about in the pandemic times is as much the total inactivity of the state the refusal to do anything the, the letting die of the population those are really major things, and those are also like really kind of important things to consider when we think about what state violence means in the climate disaster. Yeah, so we, we have a like kind of politics of authoritarianism, which I guess is defining and the kind of stringent regulations and the police kind of uh, um, acting up across the country and um, pushing their boundaries a lot. You also have, the, like you said, the politics of neglect: who gets care, who does not get care. Um, we see we've seen you know reports coming out now that. Um, people of colour, communities of colour are much more, more likely to have uh, to die from complications of COVID-19 um, and much more likely to um, be have much more serious conditions and serious kind of complications from COVID-19. Um, we need to understand why that is, which is, uh, you know, kind of structural racism and environmental racism and vast inequalities between uh, people and areas, the UK, uh, who gets who gets the parks to be open and who doesn't. It's a really kind of key point here. And who lives in like the kind of um, worst, uh, most polluted areas of cities and who lives in cleaner areas of cities um, has to be kind of um, thought about as well. So this kind of politics neglect is equally important. And it may be something that the kind of the far right pushes as well in that who gets to be looked after um, in the pandemic crisis on beyond and who doesn't is it citizens is it non-citizens is it illegal is it white people is it black people is it brown people is it migrants is it non-migrants these things are these kind of decisions are being made at the very top levels of uh, highest levels of kind of the state and 
the far right will be pushing them in a certain way um, as best they can. We all see something like a similar health uh, inequality um, coming in very soon in the future after the state has rolled out its um, kind of immunity proofs, uh, identity cards, which I think will almost certainly be a major feature of um, everyday life from now on. So um, we've talked a lot about the state response. Let's talk about the the authoritarian far right. How have they responded to this? And then I want to go on to the, um, the conspiratorial far right. So the authoritarian far right, probably most obvious example is Hungary. I know you've been doing a lot of reading on this. Um, tell me about what happened in Hungary. I mean, it's, it's like, it's, I, I need to like kind of preface this all like kind of, uh, um, what's the word? Um, caveat this by saying, you know, the, the, the situation in Hungary is kind of rapidly, rapidly developing and it's, uh, I'm doing my best reading up on it, you know, as a non-Hungarian speaker. Um, it, a, lot, a lot of countries in, in the EU have like kind of used, um, in Europe, have used the kind of crisis and brought in harsher measures. I mean, there's basically been no, there hasn't been any country which hasn't like restricted certain businesses, Input, not impose curfews, stop certain mass events, activities, stop people from going outside the house for very until unless they have very limited reasons. Um, and Hungary, in that respect, is no different. You know, the France has had a kind of rolling emergency law that has given the president a lot of power for a very long period of time. Uh, what's different is that in Hungary, Orban has uh, kind of used the COVID coronavirus crisis to kind of give himself the power to rule by decree. Um, and in and in more importantly, in an indefinite kind of way. I mean, there's no kind of limit being put on, no kind of time limit at least. Um, and that and that means that um, and that's particularly concerning because usually when uh, these kind of more sweeping kind of authoritarian kind of mechanisms are brought in, um, there is some kind of very kind of time delineated aspect to them um, in order to kind of keep the kind of legitimacy of a parliamentary kind of democracy. Um, in Hungary, we don't have this, and it's being used in kind of a much wider range of areas um, to get things done in favour of you know the far right, the Orbán's far right party, than um, than just coronavirus. And Hungary hasn't had a particularly strong response to coronavirus. They've had more deaths than other countries. Um, and Orban has used these used these new powers to push through uh, uh, um, laws against trans people, um, banning um, being able to take on whatever gender you want for your kind of official documents, um, kind of reducing uh, gender down back down to down down to biological sex. Um, it's something that has been the the ruling party has been trying to do for a long time, um, but has been faced legal challenges and now ruling by decrees being put through um, will remain to be seen what comes from this. Um, but it's incredibly worrying that um, these kind of politics are pushed. And uh, reading some counts from trans activists in, in Hungary, um, there's one, one person made the point that, um, you know, when there can't be any street protest or any kind of public gathering on the street, you know, for reasons of coronavirus, you can push through these measures that would have drawn a response in order to um, 
get them done without the usual pushback you would get. And the same thing you see in Poland pushing anti-abortion laws as well. Um, uh, the Polish government sometimes tries to do this and they get huge kind of um, backlash. And, and now it's going ahead again, or it's being pushed again. While people can't be out on the streets demonstrating, can't be doing the usual kind of political activity that you would you would do to kind of fight back against these things. Um, the other the other thing in Hungary is the kind of reform of the education system, which is was 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 on the books for a little while, but now it's being brought um, brought forward again, pushed through for next academic year, and a bunch of kind of um, Hungarian authors have been taken off, being replaced with uh, kind of anti-Semitic writers or writers who were apologists for Nazism. These kinds of quite obvious kind of uh, degradations of kind of an education system, which has very little to do with kind of the ongoing health catastrophe. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like the the, the, the stunning thing here is just how unrelated this is right, to coronavirus. It feels... It's only related if you have like a very, very general view of biopolitics, that the state would be interested in controlling the bodies or managing the bodies or organizing the bodies of the population. Yeah, it's, 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 um, it's, it's extremely odd. That's the, probably the farthest, furthest that anyone has gone in the authoritarian dimension. The thing that really worries me about this stuff is not necessarily the authoritarianism, but the astonishing disaster that is going to result from parties on the right so not necessarily the far right, but on the right, being completely laissez-faire about it. I think that as long as the, the right has no adequate response to these kinds of events, or not a response that looks anything other than giving money to corporations, which is what the US has been doing, as long as they have no adequate response to it, there is a lot of space for the far right to come in and say, look, you know, the right has failed you. The conventional government structures of the right have failed you. What you need is a much more radical solution and a much more aggressive solution to these kinds of crises. And so I think actually what worries me is not necessarily the authoritarianism, although it's terrifying for people in Hungary, but actually the failure of the right um, to, to adequately respond in any kind of way at all, which, get, which leaves space, as I say, open to the far right and people to their right, fascists and so on. I mean, the, 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 situation, in, the, yeah, the situation in Hungary is... It's just a, a like kind of the, the 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 most comprehensive example of things that are happening across the world, obviously. But it, we are the other thing we're faced with, and what activists in lots of countries are faced with is how do we kind of impose our kind of influence or impose kind of our politics when all the traditional means of political activity are at the present taken away from us. Um, and we need to be very careful that, that these kind of measures are like not extended more than they need to be. And we can try and innovate new ways of exerting influence and building power that don't involve like a big demonstration, for example, or uh, a, 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 um, well, you know, whatever else people do on the left. <laughs> Maybe we should talk about patriarchal alter alternative. Yeah, so, let's, let's, so I, I, let's, let, let's go through authoritarianism and then conspiratorialism. So authoritarianism first. Um, slightly less, I mean, they're obviously not in power. So slightly less kind of, um, uh, you know, consequentially, but nevertheless, you know, significantly. Patriotic alternative, the UK's kind of attempted replacement for 
uh, the BNP. I don't know if that's an adequate summary. Seems not far off. Um, has also been on, in on the act, particularly Mark Collette, who's their sometime leader. Um, tell us about what's happening, what's happening there. I mean, yeah, Patrick Alternative are not, um, obviously, they're just getting themselves started. They haven't even registered as a political party. They've had three conferences, um, like kind of attended by around 200 people each time. So they're not on any level of power or anything like that. Um, what concerns me about them is their potential for growth, their kind of benchmark that the BNP had set in the in the 2000s and what they obviously they're kind of um, modelling themselves on that kind of politics and that kind of political activity and strategy is concerning and we need to, um, well, we'll probably do an episode about them quite soon, but they, they need to be watched. Um, and we need to look at what their politics are to do with coronavirus and COVID-19. And in many ways, it's a, it's the same kind of cynical politics, kind of same kind of grift of politics you see from people like Tommy Robinson, in which any kind of kind of crisis, any kind of event, any kind of big kind of conversation starter in the UK is used to push a, like a narrow kind of set of politics, which in the case of Patrick Alternative is what they refer to as democratic shape. Uh, Democratic uh, demographic change, not democratic change. They're not interested in democratic change. Um, uh, kind of de- demography, demographic change, which is basically referred to as kind of white uh, British people uh, becoming quote unquote minority in their own country. Um, this is the politics of the BNP, um, and it, it in some ways it's kind of very uh, successful in that the BNP got a million votes. They got two MEPs. They controlled or opposition on. A number of councils, 40,000 members. Um, and we're seeing this with the crisis. So we're seeing a lot of slogans about open borders, bringing in disease. The the thing to do was to close the borders um, and obviously keep them closed. Um, and we have a kind of broader kind of... The, the thing about Patriot Alternative as well is they're kind of... They've set within like a firmament of like, um, const, uh, like a constellation of different kind of groups and, and individuals and activists and youtube channels and media kind of enterprises um and they're set within that and they're a nerd within that and the politics uh, the wider kind of discourse on the far right feeds into them and they feed into it in many ways um i mean the the, the kind of key contention obviously is this borders thing uh, the idea of migrants as linking migrants to the coronavirus um Muslims being um, kind of the conspiracism about Muslims being able to um, uh, meet in mosques um, and breaking quarantine, spreading disease. With I've seen that from a number of far right sources, um, obviously without any evidence. A lot of these politics are kind of pushed without kind of the logical links, the, the kind of logics behind them being very unclear. Um, I mean, so the, 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 the two people in... Uh, the reason I call this politics cynical is that, um, you know, whatever happened or whatever would happen or will happen, they will. They have the same politics. They say they push the same lines, um, and they just use the current kind of overarching thing to push their kind of uh, pro-white agenda. I just want to say that it fits. I, I just want to say that politics fits the patriarchal fits extremely easily into a certain authoritarian dimension of the far right. It's it's very very conventional in lots of ways. And maybe you're right that there is actually not much going on here and it is cynical. I think that's totally the case. 
And maybe therefore my, my kind of worry that there'll be like a, uh, a maybe a younger, more dynamic far right that would manage to uh, outflank the right on its own territory um, in terms of responding to this kind of thing more dynamically. Maybe that's an unfounded fear because across the far right and the fascist and the black pill beyond them, I think that is the case. There is a kind of a monotony to the, the forms of politics that are being pushed, certainly around this issue and also I think just more generally. So yes, I, I, maybe my fears are unfounded. And yes, you're absolutely right. There's there things are much more conventional um, than, yeah, than, than the novelty of the situation would seem to behoove. I mean, we're not seeing much innovation is what I think my, my point I'm making. And, and if, if we're looking at the kind of general kind of political tendencies that are coming out of, of coronavirus, their kind of point about demographic change, um, white people being a minority in their own land, that kind of narrative seems incredibly kind of obscure for the time. And obviously we need to start thinking of coronavirus not just in, in this particular moment, but in a kind of a much longer term, because this isn't going away anytime soon. I mean, a vaccine is at least a year away of being popularised. Um, we're going to have lockdown restrictions going on till you know, next year as well, likely um, on and off. Um, and the politics we're seeing is... I mean, first of all, there's kind of a kind of the classic English like telling on each other politics, which is a kind of kind of a low level reactionary response. We're also seeing kind of the politics of mutual aid be kind of becoming kind of much more prominent as well, which is very much antithetical to their what their agenda and what they want want to do. Um, and obviously, as time goes on and the kind of immediate crisis diminishes, there will be space for them to kind of develop a politics of borders, politics of, of entrenched racism, of repatriation, which is one of their policies. Um, but we're not seeing that yet. And I mean, one of the useful things that the left can do is uh, kind of give a coherence and be involved in um, mutual aid politics. Um, which is, is probably the one of the most kind of uh, influential radical ideas to take hold in for like 30 years. Uh, we're seeing like the kind of Mayor of London help website reference a list of all the, or link to a list of all the mutual aid groups in London as a, as a means to, for people to get help, which is a pretty kind of um, extraordinary kind of idea when you think about it. We've seen the council, council, um, local councils be completely cut out by these kind of spontaneous organising. And I think I do think that supporting that kind of organising is really important and being involved, not supporting it in, in the left way, but being involved in it and that kind of thing. For sure, yeah. I think also the state should fund it um, for the time being. While we still have a state, the state should definitely not be uh, offloading its responsibilities for social care onto mutual aid groups. Anyway, we've kind of we've 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 uh, skirted away from the far right here. Let's go back towards um, the far right and its conspiratorial responses. So, of course, these have been in some ways quite kind of comic, uh, in some ways quite horrifying. Um, perhaps my favourite one is actually the one on the um, new show we were talking about just a moment ago, where Mark Collette talks to people about the coronavirus uh, and calls for you know border shutting down. Uh, there's a guy on there called No White Guilt, who uh, is an all-round... That's literally uh, his name, No White Guilt. There's, yeah, um, a really a foolish man in, in, in a huge number of ways um, who argues that if white people hadn't been 
Oh, this is so silly. It's it's almost like uh, impossible to say. Um, if white people hadn't had to go through so many kind of um, unconscious bias training exercises or spend so much of their time involved in the kind of ameliorative politics of um, racial harmony, they would have already found a coronavirus vaccine um, using their kind of collective intellect. A astonishing level of um, uh, delusion, I would say. I mean, you, you, you make the distinction between authoritarian politics of the far right and conspiracism. And I think that is a good distinction to make. Um, but we also need to recognise that these these things are not like one group is authoritarian, one group is conspiracy. These things intermingle. And so, as, for example, take an example of practical alternative. Um, Mark Collette, um, I mean, his, his the current incarnation of his politics started with his this weekly YouTube show, which he has called Patriotic Weekly Review. It used to be called The Week in the Alt-Right. So it gives you an idea of where he is, where he's orientating himself with his show. And we're seeing with this, it's like a, you know, a talk show, and we're seeing the kind of politics, his kind of politics of authoritarianism merge with a kind of conspiratorial edge, as we can see with this thing. And obviously Colette is, um, he's, a, he's kind of a, a, a clever guy in many ways, very smooth, a good speaker, but he really can't help himself in a lot of ways. Um, he'll talk openly about Holocaust denial. He references Mein Kampf as one of his favourite books. Um, the other two books he references are ones by George Rockwell and David Duke. George, sorry, let, let's say who those people are. George Norman Rockwell was the founder of the American Nazi Party. And David Duke was a grand wizard in the KKK and was involved in Charlottesville and is still around and is um, massively anti-Semitic. Uh, I mean, he was a grand wizard in the KKK, and what, what, I can't really say much more than that. Um, so, yeah, Colette can't help but... And, and also with Colette as well, he, he does sincerely believe in kind of uh, anti-Semitic politics. He will make many references in his, in, his, in his talk show to, you know, Jews controlling the media, Jews controlling Hollywood, um, Jews bringing in migrants, Jewish people bringing in migrants... This kind of thing is, is kind of casually referred to in non-subtle ways. And uh, I think we'll, we'll talk about this more in our, in our episode on Patriarch Alternative and Mark Collette, but these kind of things, uh, along with other things, are kind of a very, very much a drag on Patriarch Alternative. People do not like that kind of stuff. And that's not the image they're trying to present in their kind of forward-facing stuff, but it's the image that anti-fascists are going to have to show people, I think. Absolutely, yeah. You're totally right as well about this uh, intermixing of authoritarian and conspiratorial politics. And we're definitely getting that in the coronavirus response as well, especially because there's a conspiracy going around that um, if you don't think that the virus is a sort of an ally against the system, then you probably think the other conspiracy theory is true, which is that um, maybe it's made by China or it's made by the Jews or made by you know, some other group, the CIA perhaps. And what this requires in response is a strong state, a strong state controlled by white nationalists, a strong state controlled by quote-unquote patriots, right? That's the, that's the thing that it requires in response. And so you can have a conspiratorial response, that a conspiratorial politics, sorry, that requires an authoritarian response. So yes, they're absolutely embedded within one another, but not necessarily. Sometimes there is a genuine contradiction. I mean, just to go back to this idea we were talking about crises, is that crises, conspiracy goes, goes along with crises in many ways. And we see conspiracy be born from crises, used to explain crises. Um, 
So I keep referring back to this one, but it is like weighs on the collective psyche even today. 9-11, um, the conspiracies coming out of 9-11, you know, Israel was coordinating with whatever to bring down the planes. Jewish people did 9-11, George Bush did 9-11. Um, there's various kind of things that came out of that, which were people still, you know, it was a controlled explosion. These things are still believed. Um, I think it's no coincidence that the kind of 5G, I mean, the 5G kind of uh, idea was uh, has been around for a long time. It was kind of proposed by um, some of the people who were doing the yellow vest protests in the UK. Um, 5G was an issue for them. And it's no, it's no surprise to me that as coronavirus has kind of taken hold and kept people inside and taken hold of people's imaginations, that 5G has become much more of a kind of talked about conspiracy, not amongst kind of um, amongst the population, because um, people look for kind of simple explanations for their kind of um, anxieties and stresses in, in of, the, of the moment, and we are. We are seeing a great massive stress on a great many people right now, and people use conspiracies as kind of a crutch in many ways. It gives an opening for these kind of more insidious kind of... I mean, people can go, oh, haha, 5G causes coronavirus or causes cancer or whatever. That's uh, kind of quite a funny, almost like a whimsical in many ways uh, conspiracy compared to many others, but... We see kind of we do see kind of a extreme extremification of these kind of beliefs and uh, uh, a bigger predictor of uh, believing in one conspiracy is, in, is to believe in another conspiracy and so you kind of collect them up as you go and there aren't too many conspiracies you can believe in until you get to a really bad one or one that's got kind of quite a awful basis to it awful underlining theme um, and then you're kind of primed for a, a worse kind of political activity. Because the other thing that conspiracy does, in many ways, is uh, a call to action to do something about it. And that might just be going down to Speaker's Corner and ranting and raving. It might just be posting on Facebook or posting on Twitter. Or it might be uh, getting involved in some uh, dodgy political project. For sure, yeah. And... Um... Just talking about the yellow vests, the most prominent of the yellow vests is a guy called James Goddard. And who was the guest on the episode of um, Patriotic Weekly Review with Mark Collette and No White Guilt that I was just talking about before? It was James Goddard. And so I think there's like a, um, a real syncretic politics that is emerging around this authoritarianism and conspiratorialism dimension that is centering itself increasingly on patriotic alternative as it kind of hoovers up all of the uh, various tendencies in the far right um, in the UK. I want to go on to um, thinking just a little bit more um, about conspiracy and its relation to biology and kind of biological politics. When the virus first came out, that makes sound like a blockbuster, but when the virus first came out or was first discovered in Wuhan um, at the end of uh, December, there was lots of, there was lots of uptake on this image board called Aitken, um, which is the replacement for 8chan, which was shut down after the El Paso shooting last year. And the reason why there was lots of uptake is because there was a great deal of excitement that there's something like SARS was happening again, which of course, in, in some ways, it, it is. But the, the, the fixation was not on the disease itself, but on the fact that they were absolutely certain at the time the disease would only affect 
Chinese people for the reason that it's taken up by what's called the ACE2 um, receptor on the edge of cells. And the proteins that are constructed by the DNA of Chinese people are more rich or contain more ACE2 receptors. It's just kind of a genetic, uh, doesn't really make much difference to the way that the uh, body functions, but it's, yeah, it's, there are difference in like the, the content or the, 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 the degree of proteins in, amongst people of um, uh, different uh, races. And so they were therefore thrilled that a virus had come along that bound or binded itself specifically to a receptor that was common in Chinese people. And therefore, lots of the white nationalists or lots of the racists or NACO were ecstatic that they would not be affected. Now, of course, this didn't last very long because we had a major outbreak in Italy. And then, of course, the story had to change. So there was a, a transition from, oh, it's not just Chinese people, but it's Chinese people and Italians who have this other protein that is particularly rich in, in them too, in, the, in, in, the, in those two racial groups, if you can even think about those racial groups. Those two groups of people have this particular, this particular protein. And then, of course, there was an outbreak also in Spain and also in France and also just ac across Europe more generally. And this is, of course, you know, white people. And so they were terrified, briefly, briefly terrified. But then it came out that in the US in particular and also in, you know, across Europe, as you were saying before, there's large racial disparities in complications. So people with dark colored skin, um, black people, uh, people who are uh, not white, people of color, are having complications at a much higher rate. And the reason for this is, of course, things like um, the fact that most diseases that are comorbidities with coronavirus are um, diseases of poverty. So you're much more likely to be diabetic if you're poor, you're much more likely to have uh, lung problems if you're poor, and so on and so on. And the, you know, uh, these populations are kept poor by, the, um, by capitalism, by the state. And therefore, because there were more complications in African-Americans in America than there were amongst white people, the far right on Aitken could decide, oh, actually, the virus is good again. Um, and so there was this kind of dip, this kind of this biological story that we go through, um, where always the virus, which seems like a kind of a natural organism that would affect people you know, uh, collectively, or all of them, because everyone has to breathe, would seem to be both kind of good because it was killing your kind of racial enemies and the Chinese. Then it was bad because it was killing Europeans, but don't worry, it's just Italians. And then it was good again because it was killing more African-Americans. And so there's this kind of fixation on, a, on, on the underpinning racial story that goes with the coronavirus outbreak. But I think it's a, a really strange dimension. It's not a dimension that I think is going to be particularly impressive uh, to most people. And I think that, that there's a real obvious ceiling to that politics that it's not going to become um a major uh it's not going to become a major part of mainstream politics that only certain people with genetic makeups in a certain way can get a certain disease so I, but i think it's, it's an interesting dimension to think about yeah and it kind of uh, exposes a kind of um well it was always the case but like kind of a negotiation on kind of in fascism and in white supremacy about who is white and who isn't i guess in more in general in like kind of state kind of conceptions of race and state racism who who is who is white and who is highly contested um and it does just take a crisis to um have people haggling of whether italians are white or not all over again you know what i mean when, when it was um in america where the irish weren't considered white or the italians weren't considered white and 
did that change? And now we're like got people on obscure message boards haggling. People who like you know are, are probably the, the most obsessed with with race um, and racial identity are again haggling about who has the white protein and who doesn't have the white protein. Um, it's a, a pretty telling kind of thing. If you want to think about the connections here with that kind of environmentalism and far right environmentalism, Madison Grant. Uh, who I talk about way too much. And uh, if you, you know, as I said at the beginning of the episode, if you come back from the future, you'll have already read everything I've ever written about Madison You Grant. love Madison Grant. You absolutely love him. You're, he's your favourite guy. <laughs> so he was, a, he was a lawyer in America and he also was did two other things. One is he, he wrote large parts of the um, 1924 uh, immigration bill, which tried to restrict immigration to certain kind of racial groups, North Europeans, and uh, not Italians. And the other one was he um, founded the national parks um, in America. So he was kind of a, uh, a racist environmentalism. Well, he was going to not. He didn't found the national parks. It's a massive overstatement. He was involved in the foundation of the national parks. He was involved in the um, various kinds of uh, communities around that, along with you know, Theodore Roosevelt and so on. And so um, he also wrote a book in 1916, I think it was, called "The Decline of the Great Race," which is about the um, dilution of the uh, what he saw as the kind of the great northern. European stock of uh, racial groups. And so I think that kind of idea is definitely has a long history, this kind of racial correspondence between immigration and environmental protection and so on and so on, has a long history. But I would be very doubtful that it will survive a long way into the 21st century. But again, this is all content from the book. Apologies if you've read it. Um, if you haven't read it, go out and buy it. You know. uh, we do we talk about more stuff. Um, should we talk quickly about I guess an anti-fascist response to the coronavirus, or you can if you want. I'm I'm actually genuinely not sure I have any ideas about what that might look like. But yeah, I mean, you def- definitely you can go for it. I don't know. I don't really. Know. I don't really know either. I mean, I think I would. I guess we need to. I guess to sum up this episode, we've gone on quite a bit already. Um, I think um, as anti-fascist, how do we how do we think about coronavirus? And uh, I think the first point is I'm not really sure, and I don't think um, Sam is either. Um, but just to, I think we need to start looking towards building on kind of the institutions of that of kind of the grassroots institutions that are being set up, the kind of base unions, um, these mutual aid groups, other kind of um, impulses towards solidarity, mutual aid, um, and kind of try and where we can uh, build upon that politics and reinforce it. Um, I feel like we're in for quite a turbulent time in the next year or two years or 10 years. And we need to start kind of innovating um, as anti-fascists, thinking how we respond to these crises, how our opponents will respond to crises and how we can oppose them um, and be prepared in advance, have our kind of strategies uh, prepared in advance in order to um, be ready for what's to come. Um, I think what we've seen in at least in my experience in anti-fascism is oftentimes there's been a great kind of game of catch-up being played in many respects. And we're kind of scrambling to kind of deal with the next big threat or the next big potential threat. And what coronavirus has done is kind of set kind of like a reference point in which all these kind of politics and political groups will respond to and be a part of, and we should be a part of that too. Yes, absolutely. Yes, that's totally true. Okay, good. I think that's all we have. Um, kind of, you know, obviously, we could go on forever because we're in lockdown. There's nothing else to do apart from go to work. Three-hour three episode, baby. 
Three. <laughs> well, soon, maybe. We might, uh, at some point, do a, a fundraiser for the Russian anti-fascist Syrian prison. Uh, and that will be 12 hours long. Once people are not raising money for, you know, viral support, uh, viral mitigation, not support. We're not, we do not support the coronavirus. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Just the clarity. <laughs> once things are a little bit less turbulent, we'll be doing a, a, a critique-a-thon of Jordan Peterson, who is our patron saint of the show. A uh, critique-a-thon of his book, uh, 12 Rules for What? We'll spend... 12 Rules for Life. Our, 12 Rules for Life. Fuck. I've got uh, so we, used to saying it as well. <laughs> we will spend at least half an hour on each chapter, including the introduction. Um, and uh, we'll see how how um, how we degrade in that period of time. Um, I feel like discussing and reading Jordan Peterson for 12 hours straight will have permanent damage on my life. And therefore, I want to raise a lot of money to do it and we need to do it at the right time. Um, but we will keep you updated on, on how that will go. We'll get guests as well to take some of the burden from us. Yes, and also the burden from your ears. Okay, thank you very much for joining us and we hope to see you again very soon. We will hopefully have another episode out um, in slightly prompter time. Uh, but of course, nothing else is happening apart from the coronavirus now. So um, that, yeah, that might not uh, be on anything else. And if you if you want to support us, um, you can give money, a regular donation on Patreon, patreon.com slash 12 rules of what? Or you can follow us on Twitter. You probably already follow us on Twitter, but if you don't, follow us on Twitter. We tweet snarky things at the moment, nothing too in-depth. Um, and I just want to say that at the time of recording, um, yesterday was the uh, anniversary of the death of Blair Peak. Um, and so I just want to say RIP uh, Blair Peak. Rebel Steps is a podcast about taking action. Season one offered insights into how individuals can join movements. Season two focuses on the ways people can work together to build these movements. Organizing in groups presents many challenges. How do you care for each other and protect each other in the midst of political struggle? How do you lift up the voices of everyone in your group? How do you work through the inevitable disagreements? All of these questions have complicated answers. As I explore these questions, you'll hear voices and stories from my community in New York City, spotlighting a range of organizers from the Metropolitan Anarchist Coordinating Council, Outlive Them, Pop Gem, Democratic Socialists of America Libertarian Socialist Caucus, and more. Just like the first season, I return to Paulo Freire's quote, what can we do today so that we can do tomorrow what we cannot do today? but this time with the realization that building our capacity will necessarily happen alongside others. Find Rebel Steps on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts, and check us out on Twitter or Patreon. 12 rules.